All right, let's worship God in the study of his word, huh? We uh, have been studying now for several Sundays the D-listers of the Bible. These are Bible characters that get less press than others in our Bibles. Uh, As we've said on the previous Sundays, we all know the names of some Bible characters. We've all heard of Mary. We've all heard of Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath. These are A-listers. But then there are these whole lists beneath them of B-listers, C-listers, but we're studying the D-listers, the ones that the only way you know their name and their credits is if you're their mom. This is basically it. (laughs) And last week, I bit off more than I could chew. We were going to study a guy who the Bible identifies for us as the Rabshakeh. He's the field commander of the Assyrian army, this guy, the Rabshakeh. We find him in Isaiah 36. And I just realized as I got through with sermon prep that week that this is a two-parter for sure. So rather than trying to cram it all into one Sunday, uh, we're going to spend time on the second half of it last week. So last week, the Rabshakeh spoke. And this week, Hezekiah is going to speak. But before I do that, just to do a quick follow-up from a previous study, A couple weeks ago, we talked about two cats named Bezalel and Oholiab. Remember that? And so if you have not heard that message, go back and listen to it, especially if you're a creative person. You're an artist. Maybe not like in a professional way, but you just feel drawn to that. Part of you just feels drawn to uh, create, to be imaginative, to, uh, yeah, to do that. Bezalel and Oholiab were these guys who were filled with the Spirit of God to use their artistic, creative gifting to worship God. And so at the end of that service, I gave kind of uh, an interesting challenge where if you feel at all drawn to that, and I don't know what you are, maybe you're a playwright, maybe you like writing poetry, maybe you're a dancer, Maybe you like painting or photography. Maybe whatever it is. There are so many different ways that artistic creativity finds expression. This summer, I want you to read the book Adorning the Dark by Andrew Peterson. And I want you to begin work on some worshipful, creative expression of who God is. Now, this fall, we're going to have a a group, the Bezalel and Oholiab group. (laughs) And it'll be different than other Bible studies you've been a part of. Normally, we kind of work our way chapter by chapter through a book, and we have discussion questions and all of that. This group is going to be different. We will have already read the book, Adorning the Dark over the Summer. And what we're going to be doing week by week is just gathering together and inviting the participants to share their work that they've made and just explain what what worshipful expression of God they're trying to communicate. I think it'll be fun. It'll be neat, and hopefully it'll be glorifying to our God. So that's going to be going on this fall. I don't want to let that drop, and so that's what we're doing. So start working on it. Go buy your macaroni and do a macaroni sculpture. I don't know what you're going to do, but <laughs> surprise us all. I've seen, I've seen some good macaroni sculptures in my day. Okay. Well, with that, let's jump back into Isaiah. This week we're in Isaiah 37. Last week we left off at the tail end of Isaiah 36, with Hezekiah, quote, shut up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Those aren't the words of the Bible. Those are the words of Sennacherib that were found etched on a large relief by archaeologists in a palace in Nineveh. 
The great and terrible king of Assyria, Sennacherib, invaded Judah in 701 B.C. And after overthrowing 46 fortified cities, he set his eyes on the ultimate prize in his conquest of Judah, the capital, Jerusalem. And that description of Hezekiah and Jerusalem, a bird in a cage, is wonderfully descriptive of Sennacherib's view, not only of Hezekiah, but also how he viewed himself. Hezekiah is, in Sennacherib's view, small, helpless, isolated, trapped, and without help. And by inference, Sennacherib views himself as the opposite of those things. He views himself as big and terrible and completely in control. One of the major themes that runs throughout the Bible, at least as it relates to our calling to live as a follower of God in this life, is this matter of appearances. And this point is really made in too many scripture passages to highlight them all right now. But the Bible is eager to remind us that in this life, things are not always what they appear to be to our natural eyes. And this truth is highlighted in nearly every book of our Bibles. The Bible says that the last will be first and the first will be last. The Bible warns us against the deceitfulness of riches. It calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. And to remember that when we are weak, then we are strong. The Lord counseled the prophet Samuel, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesus himself said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Remember in our study through the Gospel of John, this is months and months ago, but Jesus told Nicodemus that unless he is born again, he will not be able to see the kingdom and he will not be able to enter it. And in Ephesians 1, Paul writes about how the Spirit opens or enlightens the eyes of a believer's heart to see the truth of the Gospel and God's Word. There is a prevalent and oft-repeated emphasis in our Bibles on this dynamic that exists among God's people as we engage with and navigate our way through this life. By God's grace and through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, believers have come to perceive and believe in things that are not visible to Sennacherib, are not visible to the natural eyes of fallen human beings. In Psalm 63, David sings this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. You see, to the natural eyes of human beings, there is nothing better than life. And this is really what Sennacherib is counting on as he hurls his threats up at the walls of Jerusalem through his envoy, the Rabshakeh. This is really it. He says, we're going to kill you. <laughs> and there's nothing that's worth that. That's really kind of the sum total of his message. But David says a very shocking thing in this psalm. He says that there is something better than life. How can such a thing be? Nothing can be better than life because life contains all that we have and all that we're ever going to have, all that we experience and all that we're ever going to experience. Now, is that statement true? No, it's not. But that's the way the reasoning goes. David has seen something which he identifies by name. He says, I have seen the power and the glory of God. And in response to seeing this, he proclaims that the steadfast love of God is better than life. You see, Christians are people who believe in things that are better than life. And because this is true, there are fates worse than dying. Now, from the view atop the walls of Jerusalem's defenses, things looked worse than bleak. But if we zoom out even further and take in the whole scene, not from the lofty position atop the walls of Jerusalem, but from the high, unassailable vantage point of the Almighty, the scene looks different, doesn't it? How great and powerful is the army of the Assyrians from atop the walls of Jerusalem? How small they seem from the higher vantage point of God. How small is Sennacherib, and smaller still, his little trash-talking envoy, the Rabshakeh. How terrible and deadly serious are the words of the Rabshakeh from atop the walls, but zoom out. How silly, foolish, and empty they are from the vantage point of the Almighty God. How small Hezekiah is as he kneels in the temple and spreads out the letter before the Lord. But look at how suddenly, in a moment of prayer, Hezekiah becomes clothed in all the power of God. If you know your Bibles well, you might remember the details of another Bible story. In 2 Kings 6, we read about a time when the king of Syria sent an army to seize the prophet Elisha in the city of Dothan. The Syrian army arrived overnight and surrounded the city, and it says, When Elisha's servant rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, fellow Christian, one of the reasons why I just delight in doing this study 
right now is because I think the church in America is at a critical place where we tend to look on our circumstances with carnal eyes. We see surrounding the church today a growing opposition to the truth. And there are some ominous dark worlds that are words that are being hurled at the church. And I think that if God in this moment could urge us to do anything, it would be to zoom out. <laughs> to look at these words and these people within their proper perspective, these movements, these shifts. To see them not from our vantage point in front of the TV, but to zoom all the way out and look at it from the mighty, unassailable vantage point of the Almighty God. It's very important that we as God's people do this. So last week we were introduced to this trash-talking envoy of the great and terrible king Sennacherib of Assyria. One of the things I like to do when I read my Bibles is uh, try and, if I was casting a movie about this, who would I cast in the role of the Rabshakeh? And uh, I don't yet have a good solution to that, but he seems kind of like to me like a, um, I don't know. We'll come back to that. <laughs> I should have been prepared. But I think he's, a, I don't know, kind of like a smarmy guy, maybe? Yeah, definitely a trash dogger. I don't know who would be good in that role, but be thinking about that. His arm, you have to picture this from the people inside Jerusalem. I mean, the army surrounds the city, hundreds of thousands. And it's not just like troops are in the city, right? I mean, there's kids, there's elderly people. This is hearth and home stuff that honestly I've never had to experience in my life. This is pretty scary. And when he sidles up to the walls of Jerusalem and he opens his mouth and begins to speak, it's, it's chilling stuff. It's chilling. Come out and make your peace with me, or fill in the blank. It's dark, it's ominous, it's not going to be good. And we talked about it last week, but the Assyrians were not writing checks that they couldn't cash. They'd done this stuff elsewhere. They had a reputation for it. They were well known. It was a powerful opening salvo in a war of words that shook the hearts of those who heard it. He spoke to the people saying, come out to me and make your peace with me. And he spoke gravely about the consequences if they did not. King Hezekiah's representatives hurried back to the king in dismay. And when the words of the Rabshakeh were repeated to him, even their echo caused the king to tear his clothes. Everything that the Rabshakeh said was designed to deceive discourage and stir doubt among God's people. But what's interesting from this war of words and really what sets it apart from so many that we've witnessed and who among us hasn't listened in on a war of words tit for tat exchange at some point in our lives. The really interesting thing is that neither Hezekiah nor his people fired back a response at the Rabshakeh. He just full of bluster and venom and vitriol, he throws these things up at the wall. Silence. Silent as a cloud moving across the moon. <laughs> However, this truly was a war of words. And in the final analysis, the Rabshakeh brought a pea shooter to a gunfight. 
Although Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem did not trade barbs with this man like a Facebook comment thread spat, they were not altogether silent. They unleashed some heavy-duty ordinance of their own in this war of words. And they fought the Rabshakeh by speaking truth to one another, and also, most importantly, by talking to God in prayer. When Hezekiah heard from his ministers the boastful and blasphemous words of Sennacherib through his spokesman, this Rabshakeh, he did the right thing. He humbled himself before God. Uh, Up to this point, if we had just been studying our way through the kings of Judah, there is this awful pattern that sets in where the king is straying horribly and the prophet of God is chasing him down, trying to talk to him, trying to get an audience with him, trying to get him to see sense. In this moment, that is reversed. And in a moment of great humility and wisdom, Hezekiah calls for the prophet. And that's a beautifully refreshing thing to see in this moment. But when he hears these words, he does, he humbles himself. It says that as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, He tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah compares Jerusalem to a mother who is about to have a child, but at the very moment when she goes into labor, she is just way too weak to deliver the baby. And basically in this, he is admitting that he does not have what it takes to prevent the Assyrians from taking Jerusalem. Isaiah, you got to talk to God because we're right here at the point of conflict and I do not have what it takes. I'm too weak, too small. He is admitting, admitting that some of what the Rabshakeh pointed out is true. Remember when the Rabshakeh made this bold and braggadocious wager saying i'll tell you what i'll give you all the horses you want if you can put people on them (laughs) and like oh no we can't do that note also this though this is very important hezekiah calls this day a day of rebuke he humbly realized that because of their sins judah has brought this onto themselves and deserve to be punished Isaiah has been saying up to this point in the book of isaiah that the assyrians are going to be used of god as a rebuke and a chase, a tool of chastening to punish the people of Judah for their wholesale departure from God, their worshiping of other gods, their uh, departure into sin. And so I, just this, like this morning when we took communion together, I think the first thing that Hezekiah had to talk to God about was to confess sin, to confess what brought this about to begin with. This is really where the conversation begins. Yet Hezekiah thought, 
that perhaps God would take note of the contemptuous words that Rabshakeh had spoken against the living God and reprove those words with some mighty act of judgment. And if we look at this rightly, it it, it kind of works like this in Hezekiah's uh, train of thought, his reasoning. Basically, he knows that the people of Judah have been offending the glory of God by living in a way that defamed him, by living in a way that did not make him visible, did not set him up as the great and glorious and excellent thing that he is. He is basically saying at the beginning that this is a day of rebuke. We've been doing with our lives, people of Judah, what the Rabshakeh just did with his mouth. This can't stand. So let me begin just by acknowledging, God, that this is all being brought about because of our sinful disobedience from you. And this is really where the conversation always has to begin. An unholy church has nothing to say to an unholy world. A church that has no particular regard for the truth has no place in proclaiming the truth. We're either people of the book or we're not. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but it does mean that we're sincere. It means that we're repentant. It means that when God calls us, calls, brings us up short for our sins, we confess them for what they are, and we take a warrior's ethic towards the sin in our own hearts. But he's also pinning his hopes now in this moment. He knows that the Rabshakeh messed up. (laughs) He knows that the Rabshakeh messed up. When the Rabshakeh was talking about Egypt, he was right. When the Rabshakeh was talking about the resources of Judah in themselves to stop the Assyrians, he was right. But when he talked about God, The Lion of Judah being like all those other gods with a little G, he was very wrong. And Hezekiah seizes upon this. And this is really the basis of his appeal to God in prayer. Just to refresh your memory, this is what the Rabshakeh said. Thus says the king, speaking about Sennacherib, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? (laughs) He blew it. Right then and there, I'm telling you, the Rabshakeh lost this war of words. A bridge too far in a big way. There's a governing principle in the Bible concerning words. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we can see in the Rabshakeh's heart a glimpse directly into his heart. And it is a heart full of bluster, arrogance, ignorance, supremely confident, but confident in the wrong things. But also, and by contrast, we see something of Hezekiah's heart in the words that come out of his mouth. 
His prayer is rooted in a high concern for the glory of God. Listen to what he says. It may be that the Lord your God, speaking to Isaiah, will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. We see here the basis of his appeal to God is rooted in the knowledge and the understanding that God will not be mocked and that there is a high concern for his glory. An immediate answer comes from God. God has heard the blasphemy and he will act. The Isaiah sends back saying that on hearing a certain report, the Assyrian king would return home and there meet a violent death. God is assuring Hezekiah that he has everything well in hand, even the details. And evidently then, although it's not recorded in our Bibles, the Hezekiah sent a no answer to the Assyrians in their proposal for surrender. Verse 8, we pick it up. It says, The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, He has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, so basically he has to leave and go take care of this bigger fish to fry, but he doesn't want Hezekiah to think he's off the hook. So he sends a letter saying, I haven't forgotten about you. I'll deal with you in time. So he sends this letter to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who are in Telasser. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I love that picture of him just spreading the paper out before God. Here are the words. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts. Oh, please listen to this prayer. How often are my prayers like this? O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Wow, what a powerful prayer. I want you to see this. The first thing that Hezekiah does is he speaks back to God who God is. 
We've talked about this before, but this is a really important principle in prayer. When you come to the Lord's Prayer in the Bible, the first portion of that prayer is there's no request being made. It is just an acknowledgement of who God is. It begins by saying, Our Father. That's that's a powerful statement right there. When you're talking to God, you're saying, You're my dad. It's your job to protect and provide. That's who you are to me. And here he begins by saying, speaking back to God who he is. Now then the the purpose of prayer is not to move God. God's arm cannot be twisted. He cannot be hurried up. He cannot be manipulated. He knows all things. It's we who are out of position. Prayer does not exist to move God to do what he otherwise would not. Prayer exists to move us into agreement with his will. And in this moment of prayer, Hezekiah, the king, is brought into wonderful, humble alignment with God. And he speaks back to God not only who he is, but what is his greatest concern in all of history, which is his glory. He attaches everything here to that. He says that he is mocking you. He is saying that you are like all these other gods that were fashioned by the hands of men and that that's why those nations fell. But you're not like that God. And then he finishes up with this. O Lord God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So that is the basis of his appeal. In this time, the Assyrians were not mocking idols. This time they were mocking the living God. And the braggart speech of the Assyrians was just like Pharaoh, who centuries before had said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And the Assyrians, like many people today, were under the assumption that they had just done it their way. They were masters of their own destiny. Yet God was the one who had enabled them to have success. God was the one who determined the rise and fall of nations. Sennacherib's success has been possible only because God has allowed it. So his boasting has no foundation, because it was God who brought all this about. And so this is really the most important thing in this war of words, is that when the Rabshakeh spoke, the people responded by talking to God. But it's also true that they spoke to one another. We see this dialogue between Hezekiah the king and Isaiah, and Isaiah speaking back to Hezekiah the king. And what they're doing is really talking about God, talking about the basis of hope, talking about who God is. Hezekiah, in a parallel account of this same story, we find it in 2 Chronicles 32, he says this to the people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Really, I think they were taking confidence from Elisha. This is, he's stealing Elisha's lines. There are more with us than with him. And so really, these are the two things I think we need to be doing these days 
more often than, in, than arguing with the world. You know, I think that we have this tendency, at least I do, I can't speak for you, but when I hear a Rabshakeh speaking, whether it's in person or online, I just want to fire back. I just kind of want to give them a taste of their own medicine. <laughs> I want to just, I want to have an actually filled conversation. Is there any more obnoxious word in the English language than the word actually? Well, actually, I'm often tempted to have an actually filled conversation with people. But although there may be times when it's appropriate to uh, step up and address error when you hear it, the main thing that we as God's people need to be doing is talking to God and talking to one another. I think this is very important. Uh, There are just times where uh, I have been discouraged, deceived, struggling with doubt. This is what Rabshakeh's words were designed to do. And then I've come in among God's people and I've heard a sermon or I've had a conversation with a godly friend and I had my faith strengthened. I had the dismay is replaced with hope and where deceit was threatening to flower into error in my thinking, truth, I was corrected. I think it's really important that God's people in our conversations with one another learn from Hezekiah and Isaiah and we speak truth to one another in the face of this tsunami of lies that is coming up against the church. And more importantly, we need to be speaking to God. Sennacherib's fate is now revealed in verses 33 through 36 here in chapter 7, Isaiah 37. Uh, we learn that he would not forcefully take Jerusalem. He would not besiege it or even shoot one arrow against it. Instead, he would return home without ever entering Jerusalem. God would defend Jerusalem for the sake of his own glory and because of his promise to his people and to David. And that very night, as the Assyrian army lay sprawled across the Judean countryside, the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 soldiers. Incidentally, this is not only reported in the Bible. It's not reported in any of Sennacherib's records, but the historian Josephus and other historians um, have written historically about a great plague that struck Sennacherib's army, killing thousands. So that's what happens. And some 20 years later, around 681 BC, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, Sennacherib was assassinated by his own sons. Paul writes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And Hezekiah understood this dynamic. He understood that the Rabshakeh, the trash-talking envoy of the great and terrible king Sennacherib, was just the presenting face of a spiritual thing that was going on. And today the church is surrounded by arrogant rabshakas. And we need to resist the temptation of making them the object of our scorn. We need to resist the temptation of hurling abuse at them. We need to resist the temptation to make them more than just the face of the battle that is going on in the unseen realm. 
It was a wise and good command that Hezekiah gave to the people not to answer this fool according to his folly. And they kept their peace. They talked to one another. They talked to God. And in time, there was an appropriate response. So today, the church is surrounded by arrogant rabshakas, envoys of the prince of this world who hurl words in the directions of our people, words that are full of error, arrogant bluster, dark and ominous predictions in every word designed to deceive, discourage, and sow doubt. But Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What will we say? And to whom will we say it? I think that's the challenge we take away from Isaiah 37. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask your forgiveness for those times when I gave the rabshakas in my life a dose of their own medicine and I didn't come off looking good. But more importantly than me not looking good, I didn't represent you well in those exchanges. Father, I'm reminded of when Peter pulled out his sword and lopped off the ear of Malchus, and that was not what you would have had him do in that moment. But God, very often, uh, we, though we know you truly, get it wrong in the moment. And Father, I pray, Lord, as we go forward, that this would be a church family where we are committed to speaking the truth to one another in love, and that we would continue to be a praying people. God, there is so much to pray about. Father, sometimes we confess that from our vantage point, things can look really bleak. Whether we're talking about societal trends or our own health or family difficulties, God, sometimes we are just brought to the place of terrible dismay, deep sadness, worry and anxiety. And Father, in these moments, it's just very natural for us to let a, a, a word slip from our mouths that is not the right thing to do. Father, we know in James 3 where it talks about controlling the tongue, how hard that is to do. Father, I pray that, uh, that you would so change our hearts that what bubbles forth, the overflow of that heart, would point people to you even in the midst of difficulties. God, help us to master our tongue and help us to use our tongue to build others up and to cry out to you in prayer. And God, now as we close, Father, I pray that we would all use our tongues together to sing in praise to you, the God who fights for us. In Jesus' name, amen.